welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 58 for Wednesday, January 11th, 2017. Happy New Year. I am kicking off the new year with this week's episode with writer and storyteller, Matt Baum. Hi, Matt. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being had and happy new year. Happy New Year to you. So you have multiple titles, as many of my guests do. You are the co-creator of the documentary Playing with Pride, currently in development. You are the author of the book Defining Marriage and the host of the podcast Sewers of Paris. My, you're busy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on top of uh, every little piece of media I've got a finger in. That's true. Playing with Pride is video, Sewers of Paris is audio, and Defining Marriage is written. You are a master of all trades. I am, I am. What did they, they used to call Howard Stern? Master of all media? Queen of all media? No, that might be Perez Hilton. I'm not sure these are ideal role models to be comparing <laughs> no. yourself to. No, no, let's set that aside. I'm like, I'm like none of them. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what these media are. Defining Marriage is a book that you came out with in 2015, correct? What's that about? Yeah. So um, prior to writing that book, I worked on the Prop 8 trial for, oh, about two years. Uh, and that was the uh, lawsuit to get marriage equality legalized in California. So uh, I was doing communications and making videos and I was really embedded deeply on the legal effort. And so I, in that process, I started to meet a lot of people who had just dedicated their lives to fighting for not just civil rights, but for fighting for their own dignity and to protect their own families. And I heard these incredible stories from people. So I started to put them all down into this book that, as it evolved, traced the history of marriage equality from the 1970s up till today. Uh, and along the way, uh, I had my own uh, experience with my partner uh, negotiating in the relationship over what our intention for our relationship and, and how we felt personally about marriage. So as I'm fighting for the rights of, you know, millions of people in California and around the country, um, I'm having this sort of uh, domestic uh, learning experience as, uh, you know, my, my partner James and I are, are figuring out what marriage means to us personally. So I wrote this book, um, Defining Marriage, and then to go along with it, I have a podcast of the same name, Defining Marriage. It's definingmarriage.com. James and I still, you know, the book came out in 2015, and we still, 2017, every week we talk about what's going on with marriage equality and LGBTs and just our own lives and our relationships, and we, we go off the rails and get distracted frequently, but that seems to be part of the fun. <laughs> and I, think, I guess that's just part of having a relationship is getting distracted. So Defining Marriage is an anthology of the people that you interviewed? Yeah. So there's a, an anthology, I guess that's a good way to think of it, of um, people starting, you know, in the 70s when it was just this impossible dream that anyone would ever allow queer people to get married. Uh, and there were just a few, like these, these crazy dreamers who, you know, one was a, a county clerk in Colorado who two guys came in, they said, we want to get married. And she's like, I don't see why not. I mean, this was the early 70s, and it threw the country into this panic. Uh, so going all the way up from her to you know the 1980s, when there were a lot of crises on the minds of the LGBT community, there's a big debate about is marriage something we even want? Is that too much? Is that assimilating into straight culture? Then to the 90s, when there were successful legal challenges that you know were really scrappy and, and came out of nowhere. Uh, but, it, you know, it just started because somebody, one woman had an ear infection and needed her partner's health insurance and couldn't get it. And that's how, you know, an ear infection wound up changing law all over the country uh, until the you know Supreme Court had to step in and, and, and overturn marriage uh, bans in, in 2015. So, uh, yeah, and then um, the, the common thread that weaves throughout is uh, my own experience challenging, like why – why do I want to get married? And what do I do about the fact that my partner doesn't seem to want the same thing, despite at that point, we've been together almost 15 years? Wow, that must be very challenging, uh, not only to set out to create a book like that and discover that you have a lot of your own growth to do along the way, but also discover that you and your partner may not see to eye to eye on something that is very important. Yeah, yeah, it was a real learning experience. And I, I sometimes wonder where I'd be, where we would be if I hadn't been, you know, in this incredibly unique and bizarre world embedded in that trial and, and just swimming in what does marriage mean to us uh, every day after day after day. 
So tell me about this other project of yours, Sewers of Paris. I assume it's not a podcast about European sanitation. Not quite, not quite. As much as I would love for that to be the case. <laughs> uh, so the Sewers of Paris is a podcast where I have a different guest on each week, a different gay man, and we talk about the entertainment that has changed their lives. And they share personal stories about how um, – Madonna or Oscar Wilde or interestingly I just had a guy on who talks about Frank Sinatra uh, I've got another one who talked about uh, The Wizard of Oz comes up a lot Golden Girls comes up all the time uh, so you know and the, the project started because I was in a gay bar and I was talking to a guy from uh, the Czech Republic about or was it the Czech? yeah I think it was the Czech Republic about uh, uh, Bewitched the show Bewitched and the character Andorra who's sort of a, a queer icon uh, for people who I have the strange temperament that they're still interested in sitcoms of the 1960s. So he had never heard of this character. And then he started telling me about Christopher Isherwood, an author who I knew very little about. And I realized, oh, we're having really similar experiences in our lives, but we're mediating them through these very different cultural influences. And, you know, I may be obsessed with, for example, Angela Lansbury. He's obsessed with um, Harvey Firestein and, you know, but... These are common touchstones that a lot of gay men have, and they're a way for us to understand each other, even at a time when it's difficult for us to use words to talk about who we are, either because we're closeted to ourselves or we have to be closeted for our own safety, or we just haven't come to terms with the the strange life of of the gay man. Uh, so I started doing this podcast where every week I have somebody on and I ask them, what's the entertainment that changed your life? And uh, the people share these really surprising stories about how – um, books and movies and TV and shows and plays. And I had someone on to talk about opera recently. Uh, you know, they share these really surprising stories about uh, how media intersected with their lives and, and made them better people. Why is it that you interview only gay men? Well, that's a good question. It's something that I thought a lot about. Um, so I wanted to focus it very narrowly on a particular experience. As, there are a couple of reasons that I focus it just on gay men. One is that this is a... The world of the gay men, and I, I use that term in air quotes because obviously everyone's experience is different and there's not like one world of the gay man. But there are a lot of common shared experiences that gay men have and a lot of stories that resonate similarly with people from very different backgrounds. And that's something that's very particular in our culture and, and I think in, in most cultures to – Men who and and I, I've I've been kind of loose on gay and so I've had queer men on I've had bisexual people on I've I haven't had any trans people on yet but I, I would love to anyway so you know I I wanted to focus very narrowly on this one particular experience of you know what is a lot of the questions that people face are what does masculinity mean and how do I define what it is to be a man in our culture that places very particular expectations on men and I also wanted to avoid the the risk of, of being a mansplainer, essentially. You know, the, the queer women's experience is not something I have any personal experience or, or really any expertise in. So, you know, I, I felt like it really was not my story to tell. I would love for someone to have a podcast where they talk about the entertainment that affected the lives of queer women. I would love to hear about that because it's something I'm really eager to learn about. But I focus mine on, on you know, my my area of expertise and essentially on my tribe uh, because that's that's what I know and that's uh, a, a particular – it's a particular experience that uh, I, I think has a lot of common bonds between the people who, who have experienced it. And why is it called Sewers of Paris? Oh, yes. Uh, so <laughs> that name. Uh, well, for one thing, uh, it certainly sticks with you, doesn't it? Uh, for another thing – so it's a reference to – uh, a couple things. One is I just personally am actually kind of a fan of sewers. I just think sewers are fascinating. That is not the reason for the show, but it's the reason that it was kind of top of mind for me. Um, I, I just find water infrastructure really weird and exciting, uh, but that's just me. Uh, the real reason is because there was a gay bar in Los Angeles in the 1970s and possibly earlier, it's been hard for me to find out, uh, called The Sewers of Paris. It's such a weird name for a gay bar, but it was right there in the middle of Hollywood. Uh, and it was kind of in a a time that we would think of as, as very different where, you know, gay bars didn't have any windows and you had to be secretive about it and everything was hidden. Um, and I just love the fact that this was the name of it, that at once it is classy and refined, oh, Paris, but then also it's the sewers of Paris. And that's sort of what I strive for on the show is to surface queer entertainment or, or queer affiliated entertainment that manages to combine, you know, the glittering lights above the city of lights, but also the dark underbelly. Uh, and on the show, we, we do go b below the surface. We go under the surface to really peel back the layers and, and investigate 
what is it that that makes up the gay experience? What are the one of the things floating around that you might not even be aware of? Uh, we we sort of shine a light on them. So that's that's where the name comes from. Do you find that SEO is an issue for such a podcast? Um, it, it, sometimes, <laughs> very occasionally, it becomes difficult to uh, filter out. Uh, traffic from people who are looking for information about sewer tours in Paris. Uh, very seldom does that come up. Uh, it seems as though the the bleed between those two worlds, between the podcast about gay men sharing entertainment stories and tourists who are going to Paris, uh, it doesn't cause too much of a, of a problem. Every, every now and then <laughs> I'll get like a strange search or, you know, or I'll get sucked down. Like, cause like I said, I, I do find sewers really interesting. So every now and then I'll be searching for something about my own show and then I'll be like, Oh, Oh, look at this really interesting drainage project or something. And I'll just get completely distracted by something. And I'll be like, Oh, this is not related to my work at all. I need to, <laughs> I need to pull myself out of this. I just need to clarify. You're not pulling my leg about your fascination with water engineering. No, I'm absolutely not. I actually used to write about water quite a lot. Um, I used to live in San Francisco, and uh, they have a – just to give you – I can talk – literally, I can talk for a long, long time about sewers. <laughs> so I'll give, you the, I'll give you the top line, the interesting bits. One is that San Francisco, when it was um, essentially colonized by uh, uh, Europeans because it was already inhabited, uh, they tried to build sewers, and they were terrible at it. They built sewers out of wood, which – is a dreadful idea, especially when you've got tides coming in and out. So they all rotted and it was a disaster. Um, and then eventually San Francisco figured out, oh, hey, wait, if we just drain everything into this one particular point in the bay, then the tide will either wash it out to the ocean or wash it into Oakland. And either way, it's not our problem. So to this day, Oakland still has to deal with San Francisco's sewage washing in. Uh, and then the other fascinating thing about San Francisco is that it's actually surrounded by a moat. There's a giant underground moat surrounding the entire city that fills up with sewage when it when it rains. And so, I mean, you'd never know this, but it's this these giant tanks that ring the entire city. Uh, and they're there because the the city was just dumping all this sewage when it rained. And eventually the EPA was like, uh, no, you can't do this. It was actually their first the EPA's first enforcement action. No, you, you, you can't do this. You can't. <laughs> you can't keep dumping raw sewage into the ocean. So they made them build this giant structure that, I, I, you know, to me, it's like one of the wonders of the world that they were able to hide this thing in, in, you know, right under our feet. So anyway, there you go about sewers. And if somebody wants to know more about the sanitation of San Francisco, are there any resources you'd like to point them to? <laughs> I would recommend that people get in touch with uh, this guy, Joel, who does a walking tour called Think Walks, like walks that you think about. Uh, think Walks, I think it's thinkwalks.org. And he does a really nice tour. This is going to sound crazy of, among other things, he does a lot of historical tours, but he does a tour of San Francisco's water and sanitation history, which uh, is just fascinating because it's one of those things that you never think about. But if one little thing goes wrong, everybody dies. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, there will be a link to that in the show notes. Let's get to the real reason you're here today, which is your current project that you have in development and which you have been shopping around to various game conventions for the past year, which is the documentary Playing with Pride. What is Playing with Pride? So we've, we've actually been holding off calling it a documentary because like so many things that I do, it's it's sort of a multimedia uh, sort of thing. Um, what we've been calling it is a video project. And uh, so it, it started uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm sure you remember when, when GamerX was getting started. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the uh, game convention with the queer focus that got started in San Francisco. We lived there at the time. Oh, no, actually, we didn't. We lived, uh, we j just moved to L.A. But anyway, so uh, GamerX was getting started. And, uh, you know, this game convention that was uh, focused on queers was getting going. And we heard all this questioning online, my partner and I, uh, about why is this necessary and why do you have this and you're segregating yourselves and, you know, why do you have to make sexuality a big part of gaming? What does gaming have to do with sexuality? And so there was all this challenge to why GamerX was necessary. And we're like, well, James and I, my partner, we're like, that's a good question. Uh, we're both gamers. Uh, James is a veteran of the game industry and uh, I've absorbed a lot of gaming uh, through him via osmosis. And uh, he's really welcomed me into, you know, when, when we met, uh, we actually met through gaming. Uh, it was through Final Fantasy that, that we met. And he's really opened my eyes to a lot more games because he's just a, an encyclopedia of game knowledge. So we were really interested in this conference. We're really interested in the questions that people were asking about why why are we doing this? Uh, and so we decided to ask people 
so what we did is we drove around the country. Um, we started in L.A. and drove up the coast to Seattle, and then we drove across the top of the country through Minneapolis and Chicago. We drove to New York and then into Maine. Then we drove all the way back down through the middle, through Denver, and back to San Francisco just in time for Gamer X. And we were asking people – why do you want to go to this? Why are you spending, in some cases, hundreds of dollars to travel across the country and disrupt your whole weekend for for this thing? And what started to happen is we were hearing really interesting stories from people about why gay game events, queer game events, mattered to them. Stories about coming out and meeting their partners and finding their place in the world, finding their tribe, reconciling with their families. And we're like, there's something deeper going on here than just a queer game convention in San Francisco. Uh, there's a, a really interesting thing that happens when gay culture and game culture collide. People's lives are really transformed when you've got this crossing of queer culture and game culture. Uh, often these two things either don't get along or people don't expect them to get along or afraid that they won't get along. Uh, and when they're brought together, uh, something something really fascinating happens. So we've gathered these interviews, hundreds, well, about 100, 130 hours of interviews of people talking about these experiences. Uh, and what we've done is uh, taken some of the some of the most interesting stories that they've shared with us. And uh, at a couple of conventions now, we uh, went to PAX uh, and GamerX itself and HavenCon, uh, and we put these together into a you know little hour long storytelling show where James and I talk for a little bit. We show some stories from people. We talk a little more. We show some more stories, uh, and uh, people hopefully will come out of it uh, with a better understanding of of why do queer game events matter to people through the firsthand stories that people are sharing. That's a great question. It's actually one of the questions that launched this podcast. Matt Kahn, the founder of GamerX, was the very first guest ever on Polygamer, where I asked him, why do events like GamerX matter? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's something that uh, is important to have an answer to. And my hope is that through this project, people will be better positioned to either understand it or, or answer that question when it comes up. So we've done this little live show thing at... Um, at, at conferences. Uh, and then we did a live stream via Twitch and YouTube uh, back in December, November to share sort of a work in progress uh, with folks online. So we got a lot of people tuned in for that. And uh, we showed the the project live online. Uh, and people can see that still we've got it. Uh, for now, we've got it at playingwithpride.com. Uh, we're recording this in January of 2017. And so we've got it up on the front page now. We'll probably take it down to retool um, maybe in the next month or so. But uh, if folks go now to playingwithpride.com, they can they can see the live stream that we did back in November. And, um, that's about an hour long. Uh, and then we're working on um, finding new ways to present this material, whether it's in a feature documentary or webisodes or a podcast. Uh, you know, part of um, getting our, our fingers around all the footage that we've got. And, and one reason we did the live stream uh, is to find out what what form would people like to to watch these stories and how would they like to meet the people that we've interviewed? Because we've interviewed over 100 people at this point. Uh, so how do you know, we, we want to know, like, what stories are resonating with people and uh, how do they how do they like to spend time with the folks that we've interviewed? Now there have been other attempts at answering that question of why events like GamerX matter. For example, the documentary Gaming in Color. How is what you're doing different as far as the content goes? Yeah, so I I do like Gaming with Color. I mean, that's the uh, documentary that uh, a lot of the GamerX folks worked on, um, and they talked to some really interesting people. One thing that we're doing a little differently is, is Gaming in Color talk to people who are real insiders in the game community. And so we wanted to broaden that a little bit beyond just uh, folks who are, you know, are, are real experts in the industry itself. Um, for sure, we, we talk to people who work in games. We talk about game. We talk to game journalists. Um, but a lot of the folks that we've spoken to are fans or players. And so we wanted to get these firsthand answers from people about like, well, what did just what did playing games mean to you? You know, we we got some really interesting stories, for example, um, of how people choose to depict themselves in games. Uh, we chose or, or stories about uh, how people uh, have not quite fallen in love, but the the interactions and, and the romances that people have with characters in games. Uh, we talked to people who have met through games, or couples who have gotten together and, and bonded with each other through games. Uh, so we've got a, you know, a, a broad spectrum of people from, um, you know, from fans to streamers, to creators, to game journalists. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of that is, is just, we wanted to, to understand games are, games are important to people in a lot of ways. And so, um, we're taking, we're taking a, a bit broader approach than, than, uh, gaming in color did. Yeah. I have seen a variety of people in 
your videos that cover a spectrum of demographics in the gaming industry, not only industry insiders like people I've had on this podcast, for example, like Susan Arndt and Sabriel Maston and Benjamin Williams, but also people I've never heard of, including right in my own backyard in Somerville, Massachusetts. So it's really great both to see familiar faces and cheer them on, but also to discover new stories. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I love that you had Susan and Ben and Sabriel on. Those folks are great. Uh, and it was a it was a real blast interviewing all of them. Um, and yeah, and, and, and we've just had so many fascinating stories from people. People have have really opened up. And, and inclusion has been uh, very important to us uh, for this project from from the start. Uh, it's been really important that we, you know, you know, obviously we're never going to be able to tell the entire gamer experience and the queer gamer experience. But our hope is that, you know, we've been very ca- cautious about uh, making sure that we are, you know, not excluding people and, and that we are not overlooking people and, and really giving people an opportunity to to tell their story, to basically give them, an, you know, the, the, an audience, hopefully, uh, so that they can, you know, have, a, have a, a venue to talk about things that people might not other, otherwise hear about. You know, for example, I, I did a, um, a video a while back about that drew on our interviews about the characters that uh, trans people feel close to. And these are just the trans people that we interviewed. Obviously, this isn't the, you know, that trans people in general all love these characters because that's not the case. Everyone's different. But so, for example, we talked to Sabriel, who's a games journalist, about uh, how Princess Peach was important to her. Uh, I talked to another woman in Los Angeles named Satine, uh, who um, felt this deep connection to to Bayonetta. Uh, we talked to a guy in Bakersfield named Jude, who explained why uh, robot characters uh, are very important to him. He likes to identify with uh, characters like Wheatley or um, or non-human characters like the Khajiit uh because he feels like, you know, if, if gender isn't a part of their story, then it's easier for him to to relate to them. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been important for us to, to surface these uh, stories that uh, people have that are really important to them and, and other folks otherwise folks might not be aware of. I'm curious to know more about that intersection of all these individuals with their identity as gamers. For example, uh, Susan Arndt, who you mentioned you interviewed, she's the co-founder of Take This, which is a nonprofit that addresses mental health issues in the gaming community because she feels that that's a unique intersection, that mental health has unique challenges and opportunities in the gaming space. And so playing with pride does something dimmer, but with gay culture in the gaming space, what is unique about being gay and being a gamer? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and, you know, like I said, the, the whole project is sort of framed around the the transformation that occurs in people's lives when gay culture and game culture come into contact. Um, and there are a lot of things that make gay culture and game culture that, that you know, that intersection is is sort of a, a unique experience. Something that we heard from just about everybody, a real common thread was that when they were, particularly when they were kids, but, you know, throughout their lives, when they're in games, that games are a way for them to connect with other people. You know, for example, we've got a story uh, from Susan Arendt who talks about uh, how, Games helped her, you know, her dad helped her play, I think it was Asteroids, and, and gave her this great lesson about, you know, it's just a game, and she was worried about the score, high score, and he's like, you know, it's just a game, just have fun. It was an important moment for her. Uh, you know, we've got stories about um, this woman, Jolene, in Las Vegas, who was never really a gamer until uh, her son was like, I want to play World of Warcraft, and she's like, oh, I suppose I should check this game out, and then she just, like, the whole family became a gaming family after that. So... For a lot of folks, games are how they connect with people and bond with people in the same way, you know, for other people, it's, uh, you know, macrame or for some people, it's sports. Uh, games do that for people. But with queer people, often what they find is there's a point where their queerness starts to set them apart, particularly in games, in this world that used to be their point of connection. Uh, we spoke to DJ Kirkland. Uh, he's an artist in and a streamer in uh, San Francisco. And he puts it really succinctly. He says that when he was growing up, he got to this point where he was feeling like he could either be black or gay or a nerd, but he had to choose. Uh, in fact, when we talked to Ben Williams, he talks about how uh, you know he felt at home with gamers, but then the more time that he spent with them, the more he saw that's not really for me because, you know, all the all the romances are straight. And uh, there's also, you know, as we're aware, gaming and many other venues can have a harassment problem that makes people very uncomfortable. We've got, you know, one character that comes up all the time is Tara Branford from, from Final Fantasy. Uh, people talk about how she's uh, this character that straddles two worlds and she doesn't know if she, you know, the 
world of order and the world of chaos. And and what am I? <laughs> do I belong in the gay world or do I belong in the gamer world? And it, it feels to a lot of people like they have to choose. Um, and so that that really throws a lot of people into chaos that they're like, oh, yay, games this is my way to make friends and connect. And oh, wait, I don't belong here. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's something that's that's really unique to the queer gamer experience that that needing to find your community, but also feeling like, oh, because I have two communities, maybe I don't have any community. And, and that sounds very that sounds very glum and depressing. But uh, the good news is that what we found is a lot of queer people are able through games to actually find their tribe. Uh, that it's, you know, at first it's a way for people to understand themselves better. We've got a ton of great stories about people understanding themselves better through games. And then it's a great way for people to help each other by forming networks and supporting each other. And then, you know, finally, we also discovered that for creators, it's uh, important, you know, they're they're paying a lot of attention to queer communities now. Increasingly, game creators are looking at what queer audiences want and uh, asking how they can accommodate those, those audiences so more people can play. It was true what Benjamin said about a lot of video game media being focused at stray audiences. And that, unfortunately, is something that does seem unique to the gaming culture, which is that in books, TV shows, movies, you can find not a majority, unfortunately, but a variety of stories about gay culture or aimed at gay culture. And that seems to be something that the video game industry is still catching up to. The majority of the media is still where movies were 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe that's because gaming is such a new medium compared to movies, but it seems like we still have a lot of catching up to do in order to be more inclusive or just to offer more variety. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think that's correct. Um, I talk to a lot of people about queer entertainment, so I've looked at it with a magnifying glass from just about every angle on Sewers of Paris. Um, and I would agree that the gaming, that that game industry depictions uh, are lagging a bit behind mainstream depictions. And I, I wonder if part of that might just be the pace of game development and the expense of AAA development. But I will also say that based on our conversations with creators, uh, I think it's moving, it's improving a lot faster. I mean, it took, I, I, you know, the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s for TV audiences to be comfortable with queer characters on TV. You know, you'd see every now and then, um, I actually did a video on, on YouTube, on my YouTube channel about this, uh, about how queer people were depicted on sitcoms. And so, you know, going back to like the 60s on MASH, uh, you'd have, you know, there's, there's this very furtive thing of, uh, you know, there's a queer character on one episode and it was a terrible secret and it was a huge problem, which, you know, it would have been at that time. And then moving ahead to, um, uh, all in the family had a queer character and soap had a queer character, but that was very controversial. Then it took them to the eighties and, uh, cheers had a gay episode where they're, they're terrified that cheers is turning into a gay bar and there's a gay panic amongst all the patrons. Uh, and then we get to golden girls, which had a more compassionate take on gays, but still it was a very foreign concept. And then Ellen comes out. And I mean, I don't know if you remember what, like a show stopping thing it was for the country that what we have a gay character on a sitcom and it's her show. It's a regular. So, I mean, literally it took decades for us to get comfortable with gay characters, uh, on, uh, on TV, in games, I think it's I think it's moving at like a lightning pace. Um, we didn't we haven't interviewed yet, but uh, I, I've spoken to Adrian Shaw, who's a, a academic with a focus on uh, queer stories and, and on games, about where where games were. But you know, back in the '80s, there were a few games here and there where there might be a gay romance, kind of hidden away um, in a way that that seemed almost like it might be a bug, but probably wasn't. Um, and, that, you know, you've got Leisure Suit Larry, which had gay characters and not always the most flattering depiction. Um, but just in like the last decade or so, uh, there's been a big improvement. Uh, and I'll say that, you know, it, it's hard to make a video project about LGBTs and games without it kind of turning into the story of Bioware, because they've just done so much tremendous work. One of my favorite stories that we've gathered, uh, and it actually came together over the course of multiple interviews. It was just fascinating to see the story un unravel it. Not unravel, but be, 
reveal itself is the story of of Krem. I'm sure everyone, you know, your listeners are are familiar with Krem, the character that we could we could describe as trans, although that character that word isn't used in the game. Character in in Inquisition. So I mean, Krem is just groundbreaking. So we we spoke to this uh, person in Vancouver named Justin Saint, uh, and he talked about. Uh, he shared a number of really great stories. One was about, you know, re- realizing that he was perhaps genderqueer, gender fluid, uh, when he had a Pokemon save corrupted and the gender of his character was changed to female. And as a child, this happened to him and he was like, oh, I kind of like this more than I am supposed to. And, and you know, and that one little thing sent him off on this sort of journey of like, how, how, how do I gender? Uh, but anyway, he also shared a story about how Way back at at a at a previous PAX, um, there was a Bioware panel uh, where folks from Bioware were, you know, asking, "What do you want from us? What can we do better?" And you know, people were getting up and talking about what they liked about the game, what they didn't. And uh, there was a a person who got up to the microphone and said that they want to see a, a trans person who wasn't. Um, or they actually said, "I want to see someone like me in a game who isn't a monster." And that was a really moving moment. And then Justin got up and he talked about how. There had been opportunities for trans characters previously, and he felt let down by them uh, in previous Dragon Ages. Uh, and, you know, he, he said he just wanted to see someone like him who was in a position of of power, someone who could be respected. And so afterwards, uh, everyone got together. Uh, so that, that that was Justin's story. And then separately, we talked to some folks from Bioware, and they said that after that panel, they remembered those comments. And they got together at a bar, and they were like, okay, we're in a position to do this. We could we could make this happen. We can respond to these people, and that's how they got started brainstorming. How do we how do we make this character real, and uh, how do we give the, the our audience what they what they want to say? How do we give them themselves in the game? And there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of mistakes. Uh, they brought in uh, consultants to you know ask them is this respectful, and the consultants were like, oh no 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 don't do that, or oh yes that's actually that's working quite well. There there was one point where Crumb was actually outed by another character as trans and uh somebody was like "Ooh, that's really not great so maybe (laughs) don't have that happen and so over the course of these iterations and conversations eventually that was what gave birth to the fabulous character of creme um and so justin had this moment where uh we were showing our video at pax uh this past pax in in, uh, i want to say in august i think or maybe early september you know, he saw the Bioware people talk about the feedback that they got, and he had a moment where he realized, oh my god, I said that I wanted something like that, and there I am seeing them say that they were able to provide that because of the feedback they got from fans. I mean, it's such a beautiful example of how games bring people together into a community, because James uh, uh, Justin is an important part of the game community in Vancouver. Uh, he, you know, has organized meetups and he's part of this, uh, queer, uh, g- gaming events. So how queer gamers form communities, find each other, um, you know, and, and then start speaking out about what they want. Then creators hear that and they're like, oh, okay, because, because we, you, you've got this voice now, uh, we're going to listen and, and, you know, not, not, you know, completely do a 180 and, and just only listen to you, but we're going to include you so more people can play. Uh, that means more queer content in games, and that means more queer people will see themselves and feel empowered to reach out and look for others and form communities and make more noise. And, and so we're seeing this wonderful virtuous cycle. And I think that's one reason why it's changing, why the game industry is changing so fast and, and getting better so fast and getting more inclusive so fast. Uh, and to be sure, you know, there's still mistakes and there's still missteps. Um, but I think the willingness of game devs to listen uh, has been really revolutionary, and it's something that we haven't seen in other entertainment media. Uh, so I, I think it's something that everyone can be can be real proud of and, and feel really good about. It's so encouraging to hear that games are evolving like that and that future generations of gamers won't see the dearth of diversity that we may have had growing up. Your guests mm. on Sewers of Paris didn't have that diversity. Do they ever cite video games as being what led them down their path? Oh, yeah, all the time. We do talk about games a lot on Series of Paris. Uh, I have an interview with um, this guy, Tyler, uh, who was very shy growing up, uh, in a, you know, growing up in a very religious home and had a lot of uh, baggage and figuring out about sexuality to do. Uh, and 
something that really helped him was, uh, you know, he was he was kind of, you know, the the stereotype of like the loner shy kid who just keeps to himself in the basement, play video games. Well, you know, that that stereotype is sometimes true, not always, sometimes. And for him, it was so he kept to himself. Um, but the more he got into games and eventually found other people who uh, who also, you know, formed the, his game community, something he got really into was cosplay. And so he started cosplaying as anime characters and as game characters. And he realized, oh, this is this is a place where I can really shine. And I mean, he was great at making his own costumes. Uh, so he and his friends just started going to conventions. Um, and it was, for one thing, a great way for him to make friends and a, a great icebreaker, which I, I think games are, are unrivaled in their ability to be an icebreaker. We spoke to so many people for whom, you know, games were their, their gateway into making friends and, and forming lifelong bonds. So he was able to go to conventions, make friends. He was also able to really come out of his shell and uh, learn to to love being the center of attention. Um, and now he does, you know, a lot more cosplay. He uh, has a YouTube channel called What's the Safe Word, uh, where uh, he and a friend uh, talk about sexuality. He's become very open about talking about sexuality. Um, and, you know, he's really turned into a, a media figure and a role model um, for nerdy for nerdy, and he also talks about kink a lot. So he's kind of turned into a role model for nerdy, kinky, uh, queer people, which is, you know, it's it's a real nice thing. And, and game cosplay is what helped get him there. Uh, you know, for for other folks, you know, it's not it hasn't just been about video games. For a lot of folks, it's been about board games. Uh, we spoke to a guy named uh, Richard. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Ray. We spoke to a guy named Ray uh, who realized that he was getting older he turned 50 and he said that he woke up one day and he's like he didn't know who to call to just go to a movie and he's like this has got to change uh, he made some turning 50 resolutions and one of them was he said to find his fucking tribe uh, he was like where where are my gays i don't have any gay friends and he just felt isolated so what he did is he joined two local board gaming groups and he said he walked into one of them for the first time as a newcomer and he knew within five minutes that he had made friends that were going to last for the rest of his life. There was just a, you know, like a spark, like something, a light bulb switched on. And he was like, these people are going to change my life. And he was right. Uh, this was years ago. And now he hosts a Thanksgiving at his house every year uh, with, you know, all these people coming together over to his house. People that he just didn't know a few years ago. But, you know, they're like family. This is in L.A. Uh, L.A. has this really great business called uh, Game House. It's just a, it's a it's a gaming parlor. You go, it's a coffee shop with you know hundreds, literally hundreds of board games, all over tabletop games, all over the walls, and you just you know you pay a certain amount per hour, I think, and you take them down. And you just you just play, and uh, yeah, for him, you know, the, even though there's very little queer content in tabletop games, it happens, especially in in games where you can make your own narrative, uh, and having a circle where it was comfortable where people were comfortable creating queer content, just having queer conversations, making jokes about gay stuff. Uh, that's been, it's been really life-changing for him. So you're interviewing all these people who have had life-changing experiences through games. And I'm wondering, when you were putting together Defining Marriage, you were doing something similar, except it unexpectedly became a quest of self-discovery as well for you. What are you learning by putting together Playing With Pride? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, for sure, uh, I've learned more about uh, obscure queer game characters than I ever thought. I'm also learning a lot about games that I just have never played. Uh, you know, Fable passed me by, and a lot of people cited Fable as important to them. Um, you know, Fable has has some same-sex romances in there, and also um, Mass Effect. Uh, I've I played a lot of Dragon Age, but I haven't played any Mass Effect. And we have this really lovely moment with uh, someone here in Seattle where I'm based. We talked to this guy, Ian. Who was saying of Commander Shepard uh, that Commander Shepard, who you can play in later Mass Effects, can play as a uh, as as queer? He said, "I could be the gay hero I always wanted to be," and I mean that that, that really gets you. And uh, I had never played Mass Effect, and suddenly I feel like, oh, I totally get I totally get this this game and and why people want to play it. Like I you know physically felt like this pang of I understand when Ian said that. As far as myself, one thing it's done for me is it's talking to these people has changed what I'm looking for in a game because, you know, prior to doing this, I was a much more, I wouldn't say exactly casual gamer, but maybe that is a fair way to describe it. You know, I was very into Mario Kart, for example, and I really had not in Minecraft and, but I had not done what you would think of as more, you know, like hardcore gaming. I hadn't played Inquisition, for example, when, when we started doing this. Um, and I, I should also mention that a lot of our interviews are from, 
two years ago. So uh, a lot of our interviews are actually pre-Inquisition, which means they're pre-Crim, uh, and they're also they're definitely pre-Overwatch. Uh, and when Overwatch came out, suddenly our interviews became all about Overwatch. Uh, so it's for one thing, it's just been a great way for me to learn about games I would never otherwise play. But you know, I think I fell into the same. Um, maybe not trap, but the same assumption that a lot of people did, which is just, you know, games aren't for me. Games aren't going to have me in them. And there's no point even looking for me in a game. And hearing about the successes that people have had of of seeing themselves, finding their tribe and expressing themselves, you know, in games like, for example, uh, City of Heroes and City of Villains, uh, we talked to a guy who who's like, Sometimes it was it was better than real life because he could express himself and be free and he could have, you know, a queer character in that game. Uh, uh, rest in peace, City of Heroes. You know, we've we've got uh, oh a Fallout, for example. We talked to Jim Sterling, the, the podcaster and writer and video guy. And uh, Jim Sterling talks about how shocked he was to see a poly character in, in Fallout. Uh, and he, he, he said it made him realize because he generally can pass for just a, you know, you're plain old heterosexual person, uh, which he doesn't consider himself. In our interview, he said that he considers himself not straight, that he doesn't have a great label for himself, a specific label for himself, but uh, considers himself not straight. And seeing Polly depicted positively in a game shocked him to see his life there, and it really helped him understand himself. Oh, and 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 for goodness sake, Gone Home. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have brought up Gone Home. Uh, and we spoke to Andrea, who's a, a great Twitch streamer, uh, and she talked about how she's straight, and she talked about how her sister, who uh, was queer uh, and passed away, when Andrea played Gone Home, it really helped her understand her sister and her sister's relationships. Um, and in talking to those people, the effect that it's had on me is it's made me say, oh man, not only do I want to play these games, but I, I'm eager for to have experiences like yours. Not, you know, everyone's experience is going to be different. I'm not going to copy them, but, uh, you know, there's essentially there's there's a place for me. I think humans are wired to want to find our our tribe. From you know, going back to the days when when we're just a bunch of primates in trees, uh, covered in fur. Uh, I think that something is is programmed into us about finding our people and finding our tribe and finding a place where we're accepted and and where we can support each other. And uh, that's something that, that for me was missing from games. We talked to um, Tony, uh, who's one of the organizers, uh, Tony Roca of of GamerX. And she said that there came a point in her adolescence where games were all about, oh, shooting and army guys and scruffy beards. And she was like, well, I guess I'm just not a gamer. And I mean, the fact that that Tony, who's, you know, intensely a gamer, would think that because she perceived that games just didn't include her. Uh, I mean, that's 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 both really sad and really angering to me. Uh, and it's it's been such a pleasure to see everyone have really moving personal experiences through the games uh, to realize that, that those are available to me. And, and since doing this, you know, doing these interviews, I've started to play, started playing Inquisition. I romance bowl, which was, uh, you know, a, a pivotal moment in my life. Uh, romancing bowl uh, is, is an experience I will never forget, which sounds real silly to say, cause he doesn't even exist in reality, but uh, Hey, there it is. Uh, gone home was, I mean, it's been a moving experience for me, even after knowing all the details and twists have gone home. I mean, I probably played that through multiple times now. At least I've played that at least three times. Yeah. So, so finding these these stories has really changed the way that I play and, and the potential that I see in games. And just you know, I, I love getting stories from people. I love helping people open up and tell the story of their life and, and make sense of you know who they were, who they are now, who they want to be. Uh, I mean, it 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 feels great to. To hear those stories and also to share them. I love the process that we're going through now of figuring out how we're going to share these stories with people, you know, whether it's at a live thing at a, at a conference. Uh, if people go to playingwithpride.com, uh, we've got the video up there uh, right now uh, in January of 2017 where people can watch our live stream. And you can also sign up for our mailing list. Uh, we've got a mailing list of Playing With Pride where folks can can learn more about the project and, and we send out little email updates about it so folks can find out when it's going to appear either as a podcast or as a video or little webisodes or, or whatever it's going to be. So yeah, that's how that's how it's affected me. This love for sharing stories is the seems to be the connective tissue that runs through all your media, whether it's writing the book Defining Marriage, the podcast Tours of Paris, the video project Playing with Pride. That does seem to be the common theme among them all is that you're not necessarily writing from your own experience. You're not putting yourself on a pedestal. You are creating a platform for other people's voices and you're amplifying and sharing those stories. And I think that's wonderful because 
I have the same fascination. That is why every podcast I've ever done, Polygamer, Indiesider, Open Apple, they are all interview-based. It's all about getting people's stories told. And it's the same reason why I go to The Moth every month and I listen to it on NPR. It's just I think people's stories are fascinating. And even in this age of social media, Twitter and Facebook, people still lead lives of quiet desperation and they just want somebody to listen to them. And I think it's great that you're doing that. Well, it's really nice of you to say. I'm I'm so glad that uh, to hear you note that that storytelling is is the common thread because that's definitely how I feel as well. And I, I'm I'm delighted by the work that that you're doing to to get people to share their stories. And uh, it's really it's really lovely uh, to hear the moth brought up because I mean that's um, if if folks aren't familiar, it's a you know storytelling series where people just get up at a microphone and tell a story for a little while, and they're just they're just regular folks. Everyone has. Uh, so many. I'm not going to say everyone, because maybe somewhere there's somebody out there who's just never experienced a story. But I think everyone has some stories banging around inside of them, and we may not. You know, it, it's hard to it's hard to look at yourself and understand yourself. But from the outside, you know, it's it's so rewarding to to listen to somebody and help them understand. You know, what what got them to where they are and. Uh, you know, to to ask questions and learn about people. I mean, and I'm sure you you must find this as well. Like in in your in your process, like do you find when you're interviewing people that, you know, it's just the the process of asking questions is a good way to get to know them. It's not only a good way to get to know them, but it's also a good way to get to know myself because sometimes I am challenged by their answers and I'm just stumped and stymied about. Oh, I I never thought of that. That I, that never occurred to me. I can't believe that happened to you. And then I have to go back and rethink what I thought I already knew. Yeah, you know, something I do on, on Sewers of Paris is I uh, recommend a piece of media at the end of every episode. So, you know, at the I just interviewed somebody about Frank Sinatra. And so at the end of the episode, um, I recommended that people look up. There's this fascinating letter that Frank Sinatra wrote to George Michael uh, back in 1990. Um George Michael had just done an interview where he laments the the pressures of celebrity and oh it, it's there's so much pressure when when people are scrutinizing you and so Frank Sinatra wrote him this letter where he's like what are you complaining about everybody wants you know everybody has has dreams to achieve what you've achieved and you you need to embrace the celebrity you've been given a talent you need to share it and uh, you know on one hand I've I, I've read that article or that letter and I thought oh that's really inspiring talent must be shared Frank Sinatra wrote. But also, that sort of made me examine a, a couple things about myself. Is my own tendency to, um, you know, to my perfectionism of like, oh, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect before I share something. Well, sometimes it's just nice to share it and see what people say. And also, I, I think there's something important to note there, where um, you know, it's very easy for Frank Sinatra, a straight cis white guy, to say, yeah, go ahead and, and, and invite scrutiny and let people into your life and and be public. Uh, George writing that to George Michael, who was a, a who's at the time, I'm pretty sure George Michael was closeted in 1990. Um, you know, it, it makes you realize it's just a little reminder of the the pressures that marginalized people are under that might not be visible to straight people or or to to majority people, to pr- people who have privilege. And so, you know, just going through going through that and reading that article and thinking about it, reading that letter and thinking about it, uh, has just reminded me of you know sometimes. Uh, people, you know, people just don't understand each other's stories all the time. And and you got to remind them, oh, well, you may have some assumptions about what it's like, uh, but let me share with you what it's actually like. Because, you know, they, I have no doubt that Frank Sinatra was told, oh, George Michael's gay. And so he has special, you know, you know there, there are other concerns that you might not be aware of. Uh, I'd like to think that Frank Sinatra would be compassionate. He was an emotional guy. He seemed to have a lot of empathy. So, Anyway, we're getting off the beaten path here on talking about Frank Sinatra. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, go, having these experiences, listening to somebody talk about this stuff and, and going out and experiencing media, whether it's a game or, uh, you know, something written or uh, a performance, live performance, whatever it is, uh, you know, that, that active connection with people really helps you understand them and helps you understand you. And the goal of Playing With Pride is to connect people who are asking the question, why do gay gaming conventions need to exist? with the people who have the answer. But I'm curious, I I fear and suspect that a lot of people who are asking the question, why do gay gaming conventions need to exist, are asking that question rhetorically. Like, they already know the answer is that it's a silly idea, we don't need this stuff. Do you think that documentaries like 
Gaming with Color or video projects such as yourself are actually answering that question to people who are sincerely asking it. Certainly it does serve the benefit of letting gay people know that they're not alone, which is very important, is that sharing these stories let you know that other people have the same stories you do or similar experiences. But are we actually reaching our target audience or are we just preaching to the choir? That is such a good question. And it's something that, yeah, we're very much aware of. Um, and I think there's there's a couple answers. One is that there are people who just cannot be reached uh, because they don't want to be. I, I would put them at the, you know, I think they're far, you know, if we were to paint a, I don't know, a, a bar graph or a spectrum or something, you know, they're just folks that it's not a great use of time to, to try to reach those people, um, which is sad for now, but I mean, that's just how it's always going to be. That having been said, I think the majority of people are, you know, I want to believe that that most people are good. They may not be as informed as they could be, but most people want to everyone to have a good time and to play and to to have a successful gaming experience. Um, and so and that's a very long winded way to respond. But um, you know, I, I would I would point to one of the stories that we that we heard. One of the stories that we documented was from uh, Laura Kate Dale, uh, or aka Laura Buzz. Um, and so we talked to her at the last Gamer X, and she shared the story about how uh, when she was younger and not sure how she wanted to present uh, gender-wise, uh, she was playing World of Warcraft, and uh, she was presenting in-game as female and presenting in real life as male. And eventually that caused a bit of a, a crisis in the game when other players were like, why won't you ever Skype with us? And she was just terrified that her voice would give her away and uh, that uh, they would reject her for being trans because, you know, that's a story that she'd heard. Um, and that caused this huge conflict with with other people in the guild when they uh, began to learn more about her and they felt betrayed. Um, and, you know, poor Laura just legitimately did not know what she wanted from herself. She didn't know how she wanted to identify at the time. Well, fast forward ahead a, a couple of years, and so Laura's got a very public persona online now. She does the site uh, Let's Play Video Games, which is lovely, in addition to many other things. Um, you know, she, she works with Jim Sterling a lot and has a, a, a ton of podcasts and video projects. And so she had uh, this uh, fundraiser for some surgery that had come up for her, and uh, all these strangers are suddenly chipping in, and people are helping her achieve this important milestone in her life. And, you know, she had gone from people rejecting her in the game um, and, and you know, essentially, you know, branding her a, a, a betrayer for not being more honest about her sexuality when she didn't even know. And, you know, and she got to this point where, you know, strangers who probably had never thought about a lot of them had probably never thought about trans anything in their lives were giving her money for for her, you know, for her personal life. And. I, the reason I bring that up is because something she observed about that is is one that she had resolved not to keep that aspect of her life secret, which I think is a real brave thing to do and a wonderful thing to be able to do if you're lucky enough to be able to do that safely. But also in talking about games, she's just having a conversation most of the time about what game she's playing and what she likes, and what she don'ts, what's coming out from Sony, what's coming out from Nintendo. She's got a wonderful podcast about where she just talks about gaming butts. It's just fun and silly. And she talks about the butts of different video game characters. And she said that in talking about having a good time and games and having fun, stuff that people can really relate to, whether they're queer or not, or they don't know if they're queer you know, that that provides people with a, a way to get to know each other and feel close. And then, you know, she can mention incidentally, or sometimes queerness will come up. And then people who would never have thought about this or never thought that they it was their business to, to think about this, suddenly they can care and they understand why they should care. Uh, and what a great way to, to reach people and make new friends and, and to, you know, broaden horizons of folks. So, you know, I think in, in talking about gaming, there's an opportunity to build some bridges there between, you know, I talk about the collision of when gay culture and game culture collide. And sure, they collide. This is going to be a really strange metaphor, so get ready. Uh, they can collide. And then when they pull apart, there's sort of a sticky bridge that's formed between them where you can you can walk between those two things. That is a disgusting metaphor and <laughs> not at all not at all the image that I wanted to leave you with. But, I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? That sometimes they, they butt up against each other and there's a collision. And sometimes there's a bridge that's built between them. And, and I think that's something that's possible to do when, when people tell their stories. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, another answer to that is also that 
our hope, hopefully, is that even if we don't reach people who need an answer to why do gay game events matter, uh, that we reach people who can reach them. You know, one of the wonderful magical things about being queer is that we're everywhere. We're in every family. We're in every workplace. Uh, we're at every school. Wherever you go, there are queer people. And you know, the same can be said of gamers. Gamers and game gamers and queers share a lot. Uh, and so, you know, even if we're not reaching uh, somebody who doesn't understand why gamer X or something like it matters, uh, we can reach their coworker, we can reach their brother, we can reach their teacher, and you know, help that conversation get started in other venues. We've spoken to a lot of people uh, who are social organizers, and a big part of the uh, documentary project, uh, the video project, has been talking to folks, for example, in Minneapolis and in Phoenix and in Boston about how they find each other in real life and how they throw regular events and how they're social and you know what what they do to to foster community and uh you know it, it it i just have to laugh at the stereotype of the loner gamer in the basement because for sure there are those people but uh i mean what could be more social than what has more potential to be social than gaming i mean we've spoken to so many people for whom it's a family thing it's a friend thing it's a thing you do with your partner or partners uh and, and so you know this is a long-winded answer that um just to say that that community is an integral part of the queer experience and it's an integral part of the gaming experience and people can opt out of it if they want and that's fine you don't have to be you know a social butterfly all the time but it's it's there when you need it and that social thing that social element whether it's queer or gamer or both uh, is how people connect and, and get to understand each other better we've seen in the past couple of years unfortunately how toxic social media especially can be when it intersects with the gaming community but as susan said in playing with pride the gaming community can also be incredibly caring and compassionate and thoughtful and i am encouraged to hear that media like playing with pride and creators such as yourself and james are helping to foster that aspect of gaming i hope we get to see more of that in the years to come oh yeah me too uh, we, we talked to uh dylan zayner who's a streamer he used to go by 8-bit homo i think now he just goes by 8-bit dylan uh and he talks about how um you know, he saw harassment happening on Twitch and he just had a breaking point. And he's like, no, I need to do something about this. And so he just started his channel. I mean, he was literally, he was just some guy. I mean, he was not famous. He did not have a following. He just started streaming. And because his stream was supportive and friendly and welcoming and inclusive, uh, he's turned into a real Twitch celebrity. Um, and same thing with, with uh, you know, oh, is Sabriel, who you, you had on the show. Uh, she has a wonderful story about going to uh, PAX East. And she was on a panel where she uh, talked about being a woman in the game industry. And she got to a point where she was she had to ask herself, am I about to re-out myself as trans in this panel? Uh, which is, you know, a scary thing that I can't even imagine having to to deal with that question. And so she did. Uh, she had to gather herself up and it was emotional for her. And she, you know, her voice cracked a little bit. Uh, and then this whole audience at PAX. And I mean, this is not a queer specific audience. This is PAX is as, as mainstream and hardcore gamer as you can get. It's not really, but, you know, it, it is a hardcore mainstream gamer audience. Everyone erupts into cheers and applause for her um, and support. And people come up to her afterwards and talk about it. And she went into this wondering, do I have a place here? Do I belong at this and she came out of it knowing that she did. I mean, that's wonderful. Susan talks about how um, gamers can have a, a fellowship, and not just because we all played Hitman, but uh, because we know what it's like to be outsiders, uh, and we know what it's like to be the nerd, uh, we know what it's like to be the geek or the dweeb, and we know how good it feels when we support each other. We talked to another guy here named Charlie who uh, you know, talks about being double-closeted, that you know, you're, you're a subculture within a subculture, in gaming and your subculture within subculture in uh in, in the queer world and you know a lot of people have embraced it charlie for example started a giant party here called uh, pink party prime that happens around pax uh and that just literally started as a bunch of friends getting together to play rock band somewhere and i mean it was like a dozen people its first year and now it is hundreds of people it's huge uh and when you know it, it's just a great reminder that open yourself up and you say like hey guys let's have fun yeah, there's going to be people who are like, no, I don't like that. You're not like me. Uh, but the overwhelming majority are going to be like, fun. I like fun. Fun is great. Um, and and I think gamers and, and gays, uh, queers have a lot of 
a lot to learn from each other, but also just a, a lot of familiarity with each other. You know, we've we've all felt that outcast feeling, and uh, <laughs> you know, not to get too like group hug kumbaya about it, but you know, there's just something really magical about that moment where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get you, I understand. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing playing with pride help to connect more people of a variety of walks of life. I know you said that you have a variety of media and distribution formats that you're looking at. Is that going to happen in 2017? Oh yeah, absolutely. We've got some great stuff that we're working on right now. Can't wait to show it to people. Uh, the best way to connect is to go to playingwithpride.com. Uh, we've got a mailing list there where you can sign up to be the you know you'll be the first to know when we've got stuff to show. Also, right now, it's January 2017 when we're chatting. And uh, for now, we've got a uh, live stream version, uh, the the video of our presentation up on the website so folks can check that out. Uh, but we're going to have more coming up soon. So if you go to playingwithpride.com uh, and you don't see anything there, there will be stuff very soon. So just sign up for the mailing list. And uh, our, our dispatches are infrequent, so uh, you won't be nagged by us a ton. Uh, but uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll have a lot more to share. And of course, you can also follow me. Uh, I'm at Matt Baum on Twitter, where I talk about this project a lot, but I also talk about my other uh, fun and exciting endeavors. Uh, and I should also mention that my partner and I uh, also have our Twitch streamers. Uh, and so you can find us. We're pretty, pretty pixel on Twitch. Uh, so James has been playing. James plays just about everything. I'm, I'm in awe of James's uh, ability to to master various games. Uh, I think he was doing, what was he doing? He was doing Darksiders. Uh, and we do The Sims every now and then. And I'm working my way for the first time through Dragon Age Origins. I finished Inquisition and now I'm doing Origins uh, as queerly as I possibly can. Uh, I've got a mod that allowed my male dwarf to uh, romance Alistair. Uh, and so that's been very exciting to watch, um, particularly when the game glitches a little bit and suddenly Alistair's very short or my dwarf is very tall. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I will definitely have to tune in for that. Yeah, so that's uh, Pretty Pretty Pixel is the, is the Twitch stream. And there will be links to all of those in the show notes for this episode found at polygamer.net. Matt, thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to playing with Pride. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.